Well, let's, let's just do a quick review of the story of Esther, where we have been, like I said, for the past four weeks, three weeks. Esther, a Jewish girl, and her cousin Mordecai live in this place, this capital city, this place called Susa, which is right in the heart of the Persian Empire. Current day, what we know is current day Iran. It is a, it is a vast empire. It stretches from India all the way to Ethiopia, and it's ruled by this, this weak and vain king named Ahasuerush, who is easily manipulated. And he's, he's in, in the beginning of the book, he's in the third year of his reign, and he is a man who simply just seeks after pleasure and personal glory, which eventually in his lifetime becomes his downfall. He throws this great party. It is a massive party. It is a party that lasts for six months, and it's a party that he throws in his honor. It's a party that he invites everybody to to honor him. And it is a party where he treats his wife, Queen Vashti, very, very badly. He treats her with great contempt and he treats her shamefully. He asks her to come and parade before himself and all his nobles and she refuses to do so. And so he gets enraged. He is drunk. He gets enraged and he banishes her from the kingdom and As far as we know, there's a possibility she was even executed. And so he goes about and he doesn't have a queen. And so what does he do? He goes and he sends all his nobles out to scour the entire kingdom from Ethiopia to India, 127 provinces looking for the most beautiful young virgins that he can find to determine who is going to be his next queen and who will please him. And so they gather up all these virgins, and one of them is a woman named Esther, who lives in the capital city with her cousin, her older cousin Mordecai, who adopted her when her parents died. And they are Jewish, they are, from, they are exiles from the, uh, Israel, and, and she is chosen. She is, in fact, as you read in chapter one, she is considered extremely beautiful and has a beautiful figure. And so they, they all go to the, the capital city where the eunuchs prepare them to spend a night with the king to see if they will please the king. And Esther is one of those who goes in and of course she pleases the king and she becomes queen. It is it is a riveting story, in, a remarkable story, but it's a, it's a story of, of compromise. It's a story of courage. It's a story of confusion. It's a story of hatred. It's a story of revenge. And it is a story of God's divine providence. But it is a story of God's divine hidden providence. Because if you read through the book of Esther, not once is God mentioned. Not once throughout the story do you see the name of God. Not once do you see anything spiritual. There's no prayer. There is nothing going on. The only, the only hint that you have is when a fast is called. But it doesn't say who they're looking to or what exactly they're hoping will happen from the fast. All that you see is that's it. Nothing of God. And so there is this hidden providence of God throughout. In other words, we don't see God. And one of the, one of the things we learned in, in one of the other 
messages is that to understand God's providence in a book like Esther where God is not mentioned and the characters who are in the story, they see nothing of God. They have no connection to, to God working in their lives. And for us to understand the book of Esther, for us to understand even this idea of hidden providence, we have to learn to read providence backwards. Like Hebrew is read backwards. We need to read providence backwards. In other words, we don't really understand providence until we're down the road some and we look back and we see, oh, 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 I, oh, that makes sense. That's what God did. Or, oh, no, now I understand why, why that happened. Oh, yeah, you know, if I had, if I had turned left, oh no, this would have happened, but I turned right and that happened. That is when we start reading providence backwards. But, but hidden providence is hard to accept, especially when the circumstances seem so unfair. I grew up, I grew up with two brothers and between uh, the three of us, there was always a competition to, to get the most. And we hated seeing each other get something good that, that we didn't get. And if you, if you had brothers and sisters, you understand what I'm talking about. Comments like, they got more ice cream than I did. They got to play longer than I did. And, and you'd complain, and, and the cry would be, that's not fair. And my dad would respond, fair? Now that's a place where you go to ride rides. And that's not happening here. It's just not fair. Everything that happens in the early chapters of Esther do not seem fair. It just doesn't seem fair that Esther is taken from her home. It doesn't seem fair that Esther becomes a possession of the king. It doesn't seem fair that Esther has to give up her virginity for the king. It doesn't seem fair that Mordecai, who saves the king's life, is not honored but forgotten. It doesn't seem fair, as we will read, that Haman, the evil one, is promoted when Mordecai is not. It does not seem fair that this the king, Hasherosh, is so dumb, he gives this evil man, Haman, whatever he wants, including complete annihilation of the Jewish race. It doesn't seem fair. And until we read providence backwards, it will always seem unfair. Now, if we were living in Susa alongside of Esther and Mordecai, we would have no clue that God was working behind the scenes. And it would be hard for us to accept the evil that we, we read happening here in this book. But God's providence, again, is read backwards. And we have seen God's providence again and again in just the first two chapters. In chapter one, we, we wouldn't have seen that Ahasuerus's party was the setup for Esther becoming queen. We wouldn't see that extending this party another seven days would lead to Esther becoming queen. We wouldn't have seen that the drunken demand that Vashti parade herself in front of all the nobles would be preparation for Esther becoming queen. We wouldn't see Queen Vashti's refusal as preparation for Esther becoming queen. We wouldn't see the king's decree to gather all the virgins as 
Esther's preparation for becoming queen. We wouldn't see that God creating Esther beautiful is preparation for her becoming queen. We wouldn't see that God giving Esther favor with the, with the eunuch and giving her favor with the king and whoever came across would be preparation for her becoming queen. And we wouldn't see that Esther becoming queen would be the salvation of God's people. All this is going on. And so what we'll do as we do each week as we're, because this is a story. This is, this is history. This is, this is not a, just a, an epistle, a, a letter cor- of correction like Paul would write. And this is a story. And, and so in the story, we want to look again at the setting. We want to look at the story. And we want to look at the surprising hidden providence of God in the story. So the setting is Esther is now queen. And look with me in, in chapter 2, verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, so there seems to be another gathering of these virgins together, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, just that's the setting. Esther is now queen. Mordecai sits daily at the gate of, of the king. The king's gate is, is more than just a doorway. It is a, it is a vast building. It's, it's like it's a hall with columns. And it is a place where legal matters and business transactions are going on every day. And for Mordecai to be there day in and day out, it appears he is in a position of some sort of being a civil servant. He is, he is in, the, in the employ of the king. And so he's sitting by this gate. It's also a place that is close to the king. And it is a place where these, these men, these two men, Bigthan and Teresh, are guarding. So they, these are men that would have, have real access to the king and to be able to, if they wanted to, kill the king. And that's exactly what they're doing. It's a place that these men um, plot to assassinate King Hasherosh. And while Mordecai is at the gate, he learns about this plot. He learns about it. And so he goes ahead and he communicates that to Esther. He finds a way to tell Esther to tell the king. And the king looks into it. The king investigates. He says, yes, this is true. And so they, it says here, they hang him on the gala. Well, in Old Testament times, that's really more, it, it's, they were impaled on a spike and they hung from that impaled spike so that all could see what they had done. It was a deterrent for people not to disobey the king. It is a gruesome, gruesome death. And that is what the king does. Now, historically, Persian kings were known for their generosity when a subject in their kingdom served them well. And Mordecai's warning to them 
was a seriously helpful act in preserving the king's life. And the act is so important that it's recorded in the, in the king's chronicles with the king present, making sure it is done rightly. And so what kind of reward does Mordecai receive from the king? Nothing. Nothing. Which is perplexing and mysterious. It wasn't like he just did a great job taking care of the king's horses. And the king wants to reward him. It's not like he did a great job of serving the king a great meal and the, the king wants to reward him. He saved the king's life and the king does nothing. So that's, that's the setting. But then the story, and this story that we're about to read is a crisis. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. After these things, so after these things, after all this has happened, and, and the, the time period from when... when uh, Mordecai saved the king's life to the beginning of chapter 3 is about five years. So five years have gone by, and Mordecai has heard nothing from the king. Five years have gone by, and Esther is still queen. Five years have gone by, and Ahasuerus is still king, although a bad one. So after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Hamadatha and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all of the king's servants, Haman, he promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Amadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, so this is the place where Mordecai stands, were at the king's gate, bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. It's the first time Mordecai speaks. He tells him he is a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage, Haman was filled with fury. He, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. The story takes this dramatic and frightening and unexpected turn. The author tells us that after these things, about five years later, a new character enters the story, and he is a bad guy. He is a villain, and every good story needs a villain. And Haman is a great villain. He comes on the scene and he fits that role well. And Haman creates this crisis, a crisis that is so wicked and so evil, it seems that no one is more powerful than him. And there's this incredible reversal. You think about it, five years earlier, Mordecai saves the king's life and gets nothing out of it, no promotion, no recognition. And then this guy, Haman, who comes out of nowhere, we've never heard about him before. He's not mentioned in chapter one or two. Haman shows up on the scene. He gets promoted. He gets promoted so much so that he is second in command in the entire kingdom. And he's not much different than this king who is weak and vain. 
When Vashti refuses to come before the king, he gets enraged and banishes her. When Haman sees Mordecai not bowing down to him, he gets enraged. But he wants to go much further. He wants to destroy an entire race of people. Five years that Esther has been queen, five years that Mordecai has continued to be at the gate. There's this guy, Haman, and all he wants to do is destroy a race of people. Now, what's behind that? One, why, why, does, why does Mordecai refuse to bow down? And why does Haman get so enraged? Well, in, in Old Testament narrative, one of, the, one of the important clues to understanding a story is when the author gives us details about the person in the story. And so if you go back to chapter 1 and you read about Mordecai, you read about this man who is... I'm sorry, chapter 2. Now... Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who was carried away into exile. And so we know this history of, of Mordecai. He is a Jew, and his family history goes back to the tribe of Benjamin. And then we read in chapter 3 about Haman. Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Now, that means Haman comes from an ancestry whose king was King Agag. Now, what do you remember about the Benjamites and you remember about King Agag? Well, if you go back all the way to Exodus 17, you read in Exodus 17, who was the first people that came against the Jews who had just been delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians? It was the Amalekites. And because they tried to destroy the Jews, God says to the Amalekites, he says to the Jews, they will be my enemy forever and I will eventually blot them out of the face of the earth. I will, I will destroy all of the Amalekites eventually. And years later we go down and we see this man named Saul who is made king over Israel, the first king of Israel. And he goes to war. And who does he go to war with? He goes to war with the Amalekites. And who's the king of the Amalekites at that time? King Agag. And so you see there's this enmity, this, this hatred between this rivalry between the Jews, the Benjamites particularly, where King Saul is a Benjamite, and the Amalekites and King Agag. And so it's kind of, kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys. You think about that. Just years later, the Hatfields and the McCoys, and here comes these two guys. Mordecai, who is a Jew, who is not going to bow down to this Amalekite, to this, this descendant of King Agag. And here's Haman, who hates the Jews, as we learn, and wants to completely destroy them. It is, and, and you see again and again in the book of Esther this idea of reversal. 
I mean, back in, in 1 Samuel, I think it's 1 Samuel 17, Saul is commanded by God to destroy completely the Amalekites, to wipe them out, to kill men, women, children, and definitely king, kill King Agag. And what does Saul do? He spares King Agag's life. And now it's reversed where the Amalekite is going to totally wipe out the Jews. And you see these reversals again and again. And so what does Haman do? Well, it is early in the first month of the year. The name of the year is called Nisan. And it is, it is a time when Haman gathers together these, these um, diviners, these who would, who, would, who would cast lots and who would, who would read the stars. And he gathers this group and they, cast this, they, they start casting lots in chapter 3 of verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year, so five years have gone by, so Esther gets married to the king in year seven, and now it's the twelfth year. In the twelfth year, they cast king of King Herashos. They cast poor, P-U-R. They cast poor, which is they cast lots before Haman day after day. So they would cast these lots, and they're casting these lots to figure out what day do we annihilate the Jews. And so they kept casting the lots, and here it says that they cast them day after day, month after month. And it wasn't, they did it for 12 months. What they mean by month after month was they cast these lots until they came to the month that the Jews were to be annihilated. And it comes up to the 12th month, the month of Adar, that they will be destroyed. And so what does Haman do next? Haman goes to the king. He goes to the king with this plan. Now, if you look back in chapter 1, you remember how easily manipulated the king was by all of his nobles. Oh, Queen Vashti, she didn't listen to you. And now that she didn't listen to you, think about it. We're going to have an uproar. We're going to have an uprising in the kingdom because all of the women in the kingdom are not going to respect their husbands. So let's make laws to make sure that they respect their husband. And King Ahasuerus, who's probably semi-drunk, just like, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. You just... and, and, and so his nobles go and they write these edicts and that's what happens. Well, here again, Haman goes to the king. And in verse 8, then Haman said to the king, there is a certain people scattered abroad. He, didn't, he doesn't say the Jews. There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the providences. So in other words, they are everywhere. These Jews are everywhere. So let's, let's get, let you know how big this problem is. They are everywhere. And their laws are different from those of every other people. And they don't keep the king's laws. Now that's just an outright lie. It's just an outright lie. And so Haman presents this to the king. And he says, so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. In other words, I want to kill them, but I want you to know it's your problem. <laughs> They're going to be a problem for you. you. You really need to deal with this. You need to get rid of this, this, this group of people. And so he then he goes on, he goes, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. So write an edict, 
write, write it out that they would be destroyed. And, and he goes on to say, listen, I will pay you 10,000 talents to do that. Now, 10,000 talents is, is a sum beyond comprehension. It is literally over 300 tons of silver. It is about two-thirds of the, enti- of the empire's entire annual budget, their revenue, their income. And, and Haman says, I, and I'm going to give you 10,000 talents. Where is he going to get that? And the only, the only place we, we might see where he gets that is later on in the chapter where he says after he kills the Jews, he's going to plunder them. So this is, this is that, the story. Haman bribes Ahasuerus. And so the king, he's got visions of wealth dancing before his eyes. He agrees with Haman, and he gives Haman his signet ring. So the king took his signet ring, verse 10, from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, do with them as it seems good to you. Do whatever you want. Now, in verse 12, something unbelievable is happening. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written. Now, the day, this is all taking place in the first month of the year, the month of Nisan. The lot has been cast, and it's the 12th month of the year that the Jews are to be annihilated. So 11 months are going to go by before the Jews are annihilated. And then the day of the first month that the edict is written, it is written on the 13th day of the month. What is the 13th day of the first month in Jewish history? My friends, it is the, it is the eve of Passover. When God delivers Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. Look at the irony of that moment. The night that they celebrate God's deliverance, they have an edict to destroy them. As though they have gone back to where they were. The edict is sent to every province telling the entire kingdom that in 11 months every Jew in Persia will die, men, women, and children. And the author does not soften this fact at all. If you look at 13, verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces and with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. That is, that is the hatred of Haman. But more importantly, it's not just the hatred of Haman. It is, it is a shadow of Satan's hatred of the people of God. My friends, in our world, there is 
conflict, a clash of kingdoms, a confrontation every day between righteousness and wickedness, holiness and sin, truth and error, the reign of Christ and the rule of the Antichrist. Esther reminds us that we today are locked in a real spiritual battle, day in and day out. A battle that is, I mean, what, what, what does the devil want to do? Seek, kill, and destroy. That's what he wants to do. But, but we know, because we can read providence backwards, we're reading this story I mean, thousands of years later, we read Providence backwards. We know that what, what Haman does not know. We know what Haman does not know. We know that the war has already been won. We know that Christ has risen and that he is Lord over all. We know he will bring the battle to its end. We know that his kingdom is the only kingdom that will last forever. That's what we know. That's not what they know here, but that's what we know. Now think about this. If you're a Jew in Persia reading this edict, you can only surmise that God has completely abandoned you. Imagine getting this on the eve of Passover. This edict goes out with couriers to every province, to every city, to every town, to every little area. It goes out, and the Jews who are in that province are reading this, saying, in 11 months, I will be dead. Imagine the weight of that moment. A a death sentence. Getting your death sentence read to you. That, that is what is happening here. But it isn't, it isn't until we read providence backwards that we see God's faithfulness to his promises and to his people. When, when we experience suffering, when we experience the struggle with sin, when we walk through trials and we walk through tribulations, we at times wonder where God is. Where has God gone? Why has he abandoned me? It's like we're reading our own death sentence. Is this true? If you've ever sat with somebody who's gotten a report of terminal cancer, you understand what they're feeling, that moment of despair and fear. And that is what these Jews are feeling. And we, at times, can feel that way. Has God abandoned us? Has he left us? Are, are there things actually more powerful than God we don't see him anywhere in this situation that we're in. I don't, I don't see him in my, in my children who are troubled. I don't see him in my marriage that is troubled. I don't see God in my financial struggles. I don't see God in the way I'm treated at work. I don't see God in my physical suffering. I just don't see God. And the story of Esther is just a reminder that as we read Providence backwards, we discover that when God seems absent, he is really present. When God seems most absent, he is definitely most present.
in these situations. And we ask ourselves, has he left us? Where is he now? And, and, and where was he as Haman's about to, to destroy this people? This people in exile, but people throughout the kingdom. Is it because of their sin? Did, I mean, what, what, what did they do wrong? What, we ask that question. What, what is happening to me? Why is it happening to me? What did I do wrong? Is it because of my sin? Is it because I, I just, I'm not praying enough? I'm not reading my Bible enough? Is I'm, I'm not just do, what did I do wrong? But God is faithful to his promises. And remember, God's promises never rely on us. God's promises, they rely on his character, not ours. They, his promises rely on his goodness and his love and his faithfulness and his mercy and his patience and his kindness and his purpose to bring glory to his name in every situation. Listen, Jesus came to save sinners, not saints. His sinless life and his suffering and his crucifixion and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his promise to return for us and bring us into his kingdom, that is the promise we rely on. That is the providence we we look to. That is the providence we will look at backwards eventually as we are before the throne of God and we will see, oh my goodness, every situation, every moment was in the redeeming hands of God And he never let us down. Does that mean we don't experience pain? No, we do. Because we live in a broken and fallen world. We live in a world where we are among sinners and we are sinners. And the sin affects us. It is a world that is groaning and waiting for the return of Christ. But it is a world, it is a world that... When Christ returns, we'll read providence backwards and see the glory of God in everything. And that is where, in this story, the surprising hidden providences of God. Because behind all the events in our lives that are good or bad, or as in Esther and Mordecai's, God is working providentially to to his ultimate plan to protect and preserve his people because God loves his people and, and to protect them even when bad things happen to them. Listen, seeing, seeing and explaining providence in a situation, whether good or bad, is almost impossible until the situation's over and you look back upon it. And when you do, oh, oh, okay, it's much more clear. Oh yeah, now I understand it. Why didn't, I, why didn't I just respond that way in the first place? Listen. <laughs> there is much providence just in these, this chapter. Mordecai providentially hears a plot to kill the king, and he and Esther save the king's life. Now think about this. If Ahasuerus dies, most likely Esther dies. And who was second in command shortly after? Haman, who would have destroyed the Jews and had no Esther to intervene at that time. Mordecai's reward being overlooked is unfair. It's just not fair. But later we see in chapter 6 how God uses that to preserve 
the Jewish people. Haman casts lots, but he has no idea that in God's providence, he's the one, God's the one determining the, when the lot is cast. Proverbs 16, 33, we, we cast lots, but God determines their outcome. And, and then we see here, as this story is closing in chapter 3, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So the king and Haman are sitting down to a few beers, celebrating their great idea of getting rid of all the Jews, and the city is thrown in confusion, understandably. I mean, think about this. If you're, if you're living in Susa, you're living in the throughout the kingdom, and you get this letter, and you're not Jewish, but your friends are Jewish? Or what about the economy and how that affects the economy? You kill all these Jews. And, and that's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. But all in the background, God, while these men are having a little party of their own, God is at work. Karen Job, in her commentary, said this, while much of the time life might cooperate with our plans, all of us can probably look back and see how circumstances beyond our control have redirected our lives, whether for good or for sorrow. Our sense of ultimately being in control is at times revealed by life's circumstances to be an illusion. Listen, if you are disillusioned, it's because you believed in an illusion in the first place. Now, she goes on, life is full of seemingly insignificant events that in retrospect we recognize as changing the course of our lives. Only God knows the end of a matter before it has begun. The author of Esther is demonstrating the workings of divine providence. God mysteriously, patiently, and inexorably through a series of coincidental events and human decisions, even those based on questionable motives and evil intents, all of the chance events in life are really working toward the end that God has ordained. Now, God is invisibly at work, making even life's greatest disappointments a link in a chain of good things yet to come. Here's the, here's the sentence of all that you remember, and you can get this on CCB, the quote. We cannot see the end of things from the middle. And must walk by faith and not by sight. We cannot see the end of things from the middle. How often do we say, oh, I'm just in the middle of everything? Exactly. Yes, you are. And you cannot see the end of things from the middle. Esther and Mordecai are living in the middle of God's providential plan. And yet God is nowhere to be found. And the author makes sure we never see him. But he is there. He is in the story. And he's in our story as well. Father, thank you that you are in our story. And while we are in the middle of our story, unable to at times see you or just wonder where you are, Lord, you are faithful to be there. Thank you for being there. Thank you that you are present. Thank you that there are hidden providences. And Lord, we thank you that one day as we look back, we will see with fresh eyes we will see all that you have done and we will do what we are created to do, which is bring glory to your name. 
Lord, and help us to do that now as we run this race until that day that you return. In Christ's name, amen.